back to the National Citizens Inquiry in Winnipeg as we continue day two. Our next witness is joining us virtually, Brian Giesbrecht. Brian, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear. Okay, and we can hear you. I'll ask if okay. you could state your full name, spelling your first and last name for the record. Brian Giesbrecht, B-R-I-A-N Giesbrecht, G-I-E. E-S-B-R-E-C-H-T. And Brian, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Now, my understanding is, is that you were a provincial court judge in Manitoba for 31 years. That's right. And for 15 of those years, you were the associate chief judge of the provincial court in Manitoba. Yes. And um, for eight months in 1993, you were actually the acting chief judge. Yes. Now, you are retired now, but, and you've been retired for approximately 15 years. But since retiring, you have been writing extensively on spree, uh, free speech and indigenous issues. Yes. And um, prior to COVID, you had regular columns in a few newspapers. Uh, yes, I wrote for various publications. So can you tell us when COVID hit, um, what happened with your writing? Well, uh, uh, I'm associated with the uh, Frontier Center for Public Policy, and uh, um, my colleagues and I um, fairly uh, uh, early on uh, began to look uh, particularly at, at what was happening in Sweden. Um, uh, the um, uh, approach that uh, they were taking in Sweden uh, seemed to uh, simply make a lot of sense to us. And really what it was was the uh, traditional um, uh, pandemic policy that the provinces had, uh, had followed. Uh, in fact, all of the Western world had followed for, uh, uh, for many decades. And, and um, so uh, I began, I, be, I was writing most of the articles on that, but I began writing articles such as, uh, uh, one was titled, uh, uh, Sweden is doing it right, we're doing it wrong, that sort of thing. And then uh, I teamed up with um, a uh, emergency planning expert uh, by the name of David Redman. He's known to, I think, a lot of people here. He's done very extensive work in the, uh, in this field, and he was—he's a retired uh, lieutenant colonel uh, with the armed forces, very experienced in emergency planning, and he had been trying to uh, make some headway in his in his own province of of Alberta, uh, trying to speak to the senior people, and basically uh, talking about the uh, emergency plans that had always worked in the past, that they'd always used, and the lockdown plans is practically the opposite of the normal plan. So uh, we uh, wrote some articles together and uh, basically uh, <clears throat> uh, what I expected was that there should be uh, some reasonable discussion about um, uh, which parts of uh, Sweden's approach worked and which didn't. Uh, in other words, uh, there would be an objective determination about this. 
And that's, in fact, what the Swedish uh, architect of the plan, Anders Tegnell, uh, originally um, said. He said, look, this is a good opportunity for everybody because Sweden will be basically the, uh, uh, like a test tube experiment. We could compare results and we can adjust and say, okay, what's working in Sweden, what is not, and we can transfer that to the other country. That didn't happen. I was very surprised that the reaction was uh, uh, almost uniformly hostile. We had uh, mainstream newspapers, um, even internationally. New York Times uh, wrote a scathing account about Sweden and how people were just dying like flies. It wasn't true. It's not true. And as a matter of fact, Sweden has done the... Uh, uh, at least as well, and probably better than most of its European uh, counterparts, just by, by taking its very uh, hands-off approach during the, uh, the lockdown. They did not close schools. They did not shut down right. business. And, and, Brian, I'm just going to focus you, because we're, uh, we're, we're just yeah, so, I can focus you on to kind of what, if, what happened with your writing. Is just we've got yeah. to keep witnesses focused today, and, and uh, so I'm just really curious about what happened to okay. your writing and, and have you contrast that with, you know, pre-COVID? Yeah, I get that, Sean. I, 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 my point there is that um, the uh, reaction was, was hostile, the idea that anybody could take a, uh, a different view uh, on any lockdown subjects was, was seemed to be absolutely discouraged and the, uh, uh, the mainstream newspapers were particularly harsh on anyone who didn't um, uh, sort of conform. So that was my experience. We, uh, I was writing articles right throughout the uh, uh, the uh, uh, pandemic, and David Redden was making presentations to uh, uh, to many people. But uh, people were very divided because there were certainly people interested in what uh, uh, the, the non-lockdown people were saying. But half of the population at least seemed to be hostile to any suggestion that, that things could be done a different way. That was my point there. Okay. I want to switch gears and actually um, talk about your experience as a judge because actually being a judge for a full 31 years itself is quite exceptional. Um, and some of us, you know, we, we walk into a courtroom and the judge is up there in their robes and it's almost like they're in a different world. Um, and I think the average you know, person does not appreciate that judges are part of our community and that they're also influenced by kind of what the, the political or social trend is at the time. And I'm wondering if you can speak about that and maybe give us some examples, uh, you know, as when you were a judge, how you felt pressure on you to go certain ways depending on, on what was happening in the community at the time. Yeah, I, I can I can think back to one um, time. This was during the um, 1980s when uh, the uh, what were called the satanic ritual abuse uh, cases were being being heard, and uh, there were a couple of sensational cases where children had been uh, uh, coached, I guess, to 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 come up with these stories about. Uh, uh, satanic uh, sexual abuse, etc. And there were actually people who spent years in jail um, as a result of uh, false claims. In any event, the pressure on, 
on people, and not just judges, but police officers, social workers, etc. at the time, was to believe all children. In other words, every, every claim a child made, no matter how preposterous, must be accepted. Now, of course, that's not, that's not reasonable. Children don't always tell the truth, neither do adults. But there was a great deal of pressure at, at, at the time. But I don't think that, that was anything compared to uh, the pressure uh, judges must have been under uh, when this pandemic Pandemics uh, uh, struck, and I'm I'm here as an armchair quarterback. I, I will be critical of what the, uh, the Canadian courts did or didn't do, okay. but I, I do want to make the plan speaking as a private citizen here. Can I just back you up because I I really do want people to understand that judges um, do feel pressure about what's going on. So you were talking about this time where there was kind of this hysteria about satanic child abuse and pressure on the authorities. Um, was there pressure on you as a judge to basically, you know, kind of believe children when, you know, they were witnesses in court because of that social pressure? Yes, exactly. And, and that was just an example that I, uh, that I uh, can think of, but I don't think it was uh, nearly as um, uh, strong an influence as uh, uh, what it must have been like to be uh, a judge or really people in any uh, uh, position of authority when this pandemic the pandemic struck because of course people were taken by surprise and, and everything was new to people in in most cases people had not not uh, really undergone anything similar before so and I'm just going to keep uh, take you back so there, before I, I I criticize I want to yeah. recognize this fact yeah uh, so I just want to take you back there because again I want to make sure that people people understand that point is. And we were talking on an earlier occasion, you, you expressed to me that you felt similar pressure um, when spousal abuse became um, a big issue and arguably in the court system could be described as a political issue. And I'm wondering if you can describe that period and also uh, whether as a judge you felt pressure then um, to basically find that certain witnesses were credible versus other witnesses. Yes, I think so. I think at, at, at one point, again, fairly early on, uh, spousal abuse began to receive a great deal of attention, and it deserved it because uh, uh, for many years uh, the abuse of a spouse was considered uh, no big deal. Well, the law took a turn. Uh, uh, it got a lot of attention, as it should have. But then, uh, as uh, the pendulum very often swings too far, and there was definitely pressure on, on people, on judges, to um, say believe all, <laughs> believe all women, which is just as silly as, as the idea that you believe all all, all children, uh, all human beings of every uh, gender and age and uh, ethnic group, etc., uh, either uh, tell the truth or don't tell the truth or think they're telling the truth when they're not. So there was a great deal of pressure during that time, and uh, judges were very often under pretty strong criticism if, uh, if the account of a, an abused uh, woman was not accepted. Uh, so that is another example. So now uh, I, I, I would offer a, a something similar, yeah. So, and then you were, you were sharing with us already that uh, in your estimation, the pressure on judges to basically follow the COVID narrative, you know, as, and appreciating you're now an armchair judge, but you're giving us um, the impression that you, you felt that that would have been quite enormous pressure on judges. 
I think so. I think so. The pandemic was a was a, a shocking event um, uh, for everybody. So I expect that uh, judges uh, um, were just as effective as everybody else. They had to live through things as well. They had to completely adjust their uh, their work routines, uh, etc. And uh, I think they probably generally were all from the demographic, uh, uh, say, uh, uh, middle-aged, uh, upper-middle-income people who were more, more likely to be, be within the, uh, the group of people who were perhaps were most concerned or even afraid of the, uh, the virus. I think statistically that's true and that the younger people were, were less afraid and the older people uh, particularly the, uh, in the upper income groups right, right. were, were much more cautious than the other people. Now, um, can I ask you, um, because as a, a former judge, you would be you know, interested in what the courts were doing with COVID. Can you share with us um, your thoughts on how the courts um, handled COVID? And I'm just even to focus you more, um, you know, concerning perhaps defending the rights that we had under both common law and under our Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Well, uh, like many people, I was, uh, I think I'd say I was surprised and, and quite dis disappointed with, um, the, uh, 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 with the response of the courts when uh, people did um, uh, did make challenges to the uh, uh, the lockdown rules, particularly the most uh, uh, overreaching of the uh, of the uh, of the rules, uh, I think generally that the citizen expects the judge to uh, uh, to um, stand between him and government uh, overreach. And I, I have to say that in Canada, I don't think generally that did happen. I, uh, um, and again, I, I'm, I'm, it's easy for me to criticize because I'm sure it's very tough uh, hearing these cases, but uh, the response seemed to be generally that, well, if the government or if the government and their health people uh, make some sort of rule policy rule, then um, who are we as judges to, to question that? Uh, and uh, so often, um, they simply, uh, almost always, they just deferred to the, to the health authorities. And I think, I think that was, I, I think that was, that was wrong. I was comparing this to uh, the um, decisions that were coming out of the United States. Now, um, I would expect in something like this, uh, most of the decisions would uphold uh, the government regulations that only makes sense, but there they did have a lively and vigorous uh, testing of of the rules, and I think that was very uh, very necessary and helpful. I'll just give one example, if I can, or or maybe two. Um, that uh, judge uh, that struck down the mandate requirement for masks on airplanes in the United States. Well, um, uh, the government was going to appeal, but they never did. I think the a judge actually got the government off the hook on that one because the mask mandate on planes at that time made no sense and, and uh, uh, did not cause any problems when it was removed. But the fact is that Americans for many months were traveling on airplanes while Canadians 
uh, still had had to wear masks on the, on the planes, and and uh, for some people that causes real problems, especially on a long flight. Vaccine mandates were the other uh, were the other um, example where American courts had struck down um, uh, several of the the most egregious vaccine mandates months and months before these things were finally put to to rest in Canada. And those vaccine mandates caused, especially for people who say had previously been infected and uh, didn't need the vaccine in the first place or whatever, uh, they caused tremendous hardship. People lost their jobs while all of this going was going on. Well, I do think that if people had the sense that they could go to court and get a, uh, get a, a fair hearing and have a chance to have the most egregious uh, government policies uh, removed, they would have done so. But I think the feeling was, at least my my impression, is that people felt that there really was no purpose in taking something to to court uh, nope. here nope. because the would just not be. Can I can uh, I ask you to give? Would I'll just sorry to break in, but can I ask you to give us a couple of examples, perhaps from Manitoba, of, of cases that would have given people in Manitoba uh, the feeling that there's really no point in going to court. Well, I, I was following the, the, the church cases, and uh, um, we had in, in Manitoba, as you know, some uh, uh, situations, for instance, where uh, the southern Manitoba church, which is where even going to the uh, extent of, of holding church services uh, outdoors uh, or sitting in cars, and yet the police were still called, and, and uh, or even uh, uh, the few funerals where people were not able to say goodbye to, to dying relatives. Well, I think that was, was, that was government overreach uh, of, of uh, uh, really, uh, uh, I don't think that even and, in and Wuhan, China, Brian, the I'm government just, I'm went just, that I'm just going to have to stop yeah. you and, and ask if you can turn off your video because your, your audio is breaking up, and so I think we need the bandwidth. So at least uh, we have your video. We just must have a oh. bad inter internet connection. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. No. Sorry about that. But there, but it's important that we hear what you say. So I'm just wondering. So you're talking about the lockdown case. Um, can you tell us what happened in that case and why that that might have caused Manitobans to think that the court was not going to stand between the state and themselves? Well, just generally, and I'm. Not putting myself forward as, as an expert uh, in, in, in uh, on any of these cases, but I I, I think just generally uh, the the people uh, who did bring the case to court uh, thought that they had a, a very legitimate point, uh, and uh, basically attending uh, being able to attend church, especially if it's done uh, 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 outdoor sitting in your car, uh, that would be uh, reasonable. Um, I think that there are many other examples of, of, uh, of uh, uh, overreach by the government. For instance, uh, my personal example is uh, uh, going out for a hike in a park and finding that the outdoor hiking trails were closed. Well, I right. think uh, that uh, Brian, was, I, just, I, just, uh, I just want to focus you because I'm, yeah, I'm trying to get yeah. you to a place we talked about in an, in an interview. So um, you were telling yeah. me about Justice Joyle in the Manitoba lockdown case and uh, about him privileging the government's position. And so can you please share that, 
that with us. Okay, and, well, and I, I wanted I to take want... you to that Ontario Court of Appeal case and your thoughts on the judicial system generally. Okay, the, 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 uh, uh, and, and I don't want to be critical of Justice Joyal. He's an excellent judge. He's a very excellent judge. But just generally, I think that the... Uh, uh, that the um, uh, uh, some of the bylaws, some of the rules that were made in Manitoba were 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 particularly unreasonable, and and I think that uh, I'll just say this: that uh, uh, people, citizens, should that had the expectation that they could go to court and have a reasonable chance of having the judges. And I'm not critical of any particular judge here. Um, have judges uh, look at that and not simply tell them, well, uh, um, whatever the public health authorities uh, decide is good enough for me. So I, I think I'll leave the Manitoba one at that. I'll, I'm certainly uh, happy to discuss that Ontario case uh, by all means. Sure. If you can, so before we leave the, the Manitoba lockdown case, so would I be fair in summarizing that um, it? It's the fact that there was deference given to the provincial public health authorities and basically accepting that as true um, without actually testing it that was the concern? Uh, yes, I think that's, that's right. The, uh, uh, I, I would just say that generally the, uh, the um, being too quick to simply accept the uh, uh, the decision of the public health uh, officials is not uh, something that the judges should do. And I think that judges probably are doing a lot of discussion about, they're having a lot of discussion about the role they played or didn't play during the pandemic. And I just point out once again, it's easy for me to criticize, I didn't have to do it. Right, now, um, so the Ontario Court of Appeal decision we're referring to is JN versus CG. Um, do you want to share your thoughts on that and then um, kind of your thoughts on well, what the ramifications are for the court if, if this continues? Yeah, I, uh, I recall in that particular case, a mother who had custody of, uh, of children uh, did not want to, to have the two children she had custody of uh, vaccinated. And she had definitely done her homework. She was a uh, uh, obviously a very capable person. And the separated father uh, went to court and wanted to have the children vaccinated. Now, uh, I read the decision of the motions judge and I was totally impressed. I thought he, I thought the judge uh, really took a lot of time to um, objectively review the evidence. And, and, and uh, uh, the judge came to the decision that the woman that she had custody after all uh, should have the right to decide whether those children were vaccinated or not. But when it was taken up to the Court of Appeal, uh, and not to be too, too smug here about, uh, uh, or, or too quick to, uh, uh, to judge, but I think that the Court of Appeal basically just said, as, as I, uh, uh, whatever the provincial authorities decide, uh, that should stand. So I would be, uh, 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 critical, if I'm right about that, that they gave too much deference to the provincial authorities, uh, the health authorities, and just because it was under the name of health or emergency, they didn't uh, properly uh, look into uh, the um, uh, the findings that the motions judge made and the uh, 
uh, the evidence that the the, uh, the wife in that case presented, I would be critical of of, uh, of how they decided in that case. No, um, and I think that yeah, go ahead. Well, you had said something profound to me uh, when we had a conversation. Is um, you'd said to me, you know, if the Ontario Court of Appeal is saying that you can take what the government says at face value, then you don't need courts. And I'm wondering if you, first of all, remember saying that, and, and if you do, if you can comment on uh, you know, what you mean. Yes. Uh, I, if um, the court is simply going to accept uh, any decision that uh, is made by a government official, uh, then uh, what is the purpose of the court? The citizen uh, needs the court to stand between themselves and the government and, and relies on the court to protect liberties. And if the court is uh, uh, really not um, uh, doing that, uh, then I, uh, I do ask that question, what is the purpose of the court? And I think uh, on even an even larger scale, I think all of us uh, uh, are going to have to ask, is Canada still the country we thought it was before the pandemic. In other words, are individual liberties, are they malleable? Uh, or have we somehow decided to give them up uh, whenever a virus comes to call? So I think there's some pretty big questions that we all have to ask ourselves. And I do believe that the legal profession the judges are probably asking themselves these questions right now. So, now. And they're pretty big questions. Brian, I know that my the social media team at the NCI is going to be very upset with me if I don't ask you to turn your video on and then I have you ask that question again um, because your answer I think is of tremendous yeah. importance um, and I think people should see you, um, when you when you say it. So I, I basically brought back to you that in an earlier conversation you had shared with me that if the Ontario Court of Appeal and I think we could say courts generally um, are saying that you can take what the government says at face value, then you don't need the courts. And so if, if once again with your video on you can comment on what you meant by that and, and what the ramifications for us as a nation are. Yes, I wasn't trying to be disrespectful, but I am suggesting that uh, now that this pandemic episode has passed, uh, everybody has to have themselves uh, some pretty big questions. I think judges have to uh, ask themselves whether or not they did play uh, the proper role during the pandemic in, in, in protecting people's rights. And the country as a whole ask, has to ask itself uh, the question, are civil liberties and individual rights important to us any longer? Or are we, uh, after this pandemic uh, episode, uh, wanting to live in a different country uh, where we don't ha have to exercise individual rights, where we rely upon the government to do everything for us. So I think these are very big questions and I've been pondering this for, for some time because it, it seems to me that Canada is not the country or right now uh, as we're emerging from this pandemic is not the country uh, I think it was before the pandemic started. So I, uh, I do uh, uh, I do expect that uh, uh, 
many people, media people too, and uh, our politicians are going to have to ask themselves some very, very serious questions about the role they play during this uh, this pandemic. And uh, I live in Manitoba, and Manitoba was, um, uh, I think, uh, in many cases, particularly draconian in some of the rules and laws we set. And uh, I referred to the cases where people couldn't even attend their um, uh, funerals for dying family members, or uh, uh, etc., or even go to church. Okay, and, and Brian, I'm just gonna, well, I'm just gonna. Uh, do we want to live in such a? Yeah, I'm just gonna. I, I just have to. We have to keep the witnesses a little tight sure. today, and and I want to give the, the commissioners an opportunity to ask you any questions if they have any. Sure. And there are questions. Thank you for your testimony. Have you ever noticed a time when the world came together as it has in the past three years in one mind, all levels of government, the judiciary, uh, the administrators at school board levels, for example, where everybody seemed to be on one mind except for the people, excepting the people who were arguing that our civil liberties were being deprived? No, this was, uh, this was new to me and it was, um, to be quite honest, uh, a very frightening experience, um, and uh, I I don't know how to explain it, uh, but it does uh, it does seem that um, there was some sort of I don't know if we uh, uh, if if uh, the various leaders all all made this at the same time or how it came about, but I have never experienced such a thing, and I and I do not believe it's it's uh, it was a healthy experience. And my second question is on social media, somewhere in the middle of um, the pandemic, there was a photo circulating on social media that had uh, the judges, the Supreme Court judges, saying they were all vaxxed in unity. And the message to the people was that the judges were vaxxed, why aren't we? So I just wondered, um, it seemed to me that there was a lot of posturing in that photo circulating, and I'm going to admit that I don't know the authenticity of that photo. But what are your thoughts on the separation of powers? Because we've always had the legislature on one side and the judiciary on the other. And what was that picture circulating around social media doing in terms of promoting uh, the government narrative as opposed to that that perceived independence of the judiciary? Well, uh, just generally, I believe from the start that vaccination should be a personal decision. And uh, 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 without going into the, the vaccine too much, because I'm not a medical doctor or sci scientist, but I mean, it was known from the beginning that uh, uh, people who chose to be vaccinated uh, would still be infected and could still spread the disease, just like unvaccinated people. So there was never a reason in the first place to somehow uh, demonize um, um, unvaccinated people, people who chose for whatever reason they, they cared to not to be vaccinated. And I think the campaign, which was uh, more than just a health campaign, um, became something uh, quite un unhealthy when people were were 
pushed and and uh, uh, more than pushed into choosing uh, a vaccination. And here in this province, Manitoba, we saw what was almost a demonization of people who were called anti-vaxxers. And this uh, was particularly targeted. It was quite ugly against the people of southern Manitoba. And even our main uh, newspaper seemed to... Brian, uh, and, Brian, and, Brian can I just... Okay, I, think, I, I think... have to say even the politicians sort of took aim at these people. Yeah. Um, David, can I have the mic for a sec? So, Brian, sorry, I, but I think I think the commissioner was asking you really about whether it was appropriate for the Supreme Court of Canada to pose saying that they were vaccinated because then they're basically participating in politics and traditionally we've had a separation between the legislative branch of government and the courts that are supposed to be apart. And so I think the commissioner was asking you to comment on what it seems to be the courts um, engaging in a political message in support of uh, the Yes, and I... I I apologize for not answering, for not being clear, but uh, I, I'm, I'm agreeing. I'm saying that this uh, uh, this campaign, which even included uh, uh, the judges in this vaccination claim, this is not something that we should have. Uh, that is not something that should have been done, and it contributes to division. It did not it did not contribute to anything healthy? So I'm agreeing with this person. I'm sorry to to make it too long of an answer. And I just have one more question. Um, when you think of, and you alluded to this, the newspapers being bought off and independence uh, reporters being dismissed as professors of false information, how do ordinary people influence the judiciary apart from going to court and, and having legal precedents set that will go against the populace in the future? How do they influence judges to say that there is a different side to the narrative? Uh, yeah, I don't think that there is any any very simple answer. If 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 the courts aren't available to uh, to, to to people, and if politicians are not uh, um, uh, willing to uh, to listen to um, uh, the point of view of someone who does not uh, uh, accept the prevailing narrative, then there are very few. Uh, options and I think that's what we see what we've seen I think we've seen basically uh, half the country feeling um, that they've been um, uh, not listened to and not treated very well and uh, uh, and the other half um, uh, wanting at, at times even more restrictions so I, I'm sorry I don't have a real uh, answer there but what I am saying is that I'm just it's just a plea for people to try to be more objective and not get caught up in some type of a, a, a groupthink type of uh, um, um, uh, a thing, which I think happened during this uh, this pandemic, particularly once we got into the idea that everybody had to be vaccinated. I think that's when things really went off the rails. I want to say thank you. Thank you, Justice Giesbrecht, for um, giving us your testimony today. We had a witness in Toronto, Mr. Pardee, who talked to us a little bit about um, 
Well, he covered a few things, uh, one being the deference being given by the legislature to the administrative state, uh, paired with the deference that courts have been giving to the administrative state, which I think you've touched on today, um, and paired with uh, maybe some weaknesses within our charter that we weren't expecting, having led to the results of where we are today. And when I questioned him on how to address these um, these particular positions, he seemed to think that addressing the legislative deference to the administrative state, um, and even possibly, although uh, not realistically, amending the charter was a good way of approaching it. I'm wondering if um, you have any recommendations on how the courts could look at um, addressing the, the significant amount of deference that has arisen. Well, I don't know that I have any recommendations. I'm just suggesting that um, uh, the judges in their discussions um, uh, should be um, thinking a great deal about the role that they did play or didn't play uh, during the pandemic. Uh, do they feel that they properly protected uh, civil liberties? Um, uh, or do they feel that perhaps they, um, uh, they gave too much deference uh, to uh, provincial policies, even ones that were quite, uh, uh, quite extreme? So I'm not sure if I have any uh, suggestions as far as different laws or anything like that is concerned, because I don't think that's what is required. I think there, there, uh, uh, there needs to be a little more uh, attention given to the rights of Canadians and I really hope as a Canadian I hope that we haven't entered a time when um, we're going to uh, lay down our uh, uh, carefully acquired civil liberties uh, whenever there is any type of a health threat uh, that's my personal hope so you're suggesting really a self-reflection exercise by the courts and the judges yes I am thank you Good afternoon. Um, I have a, a couple of questions on some specific things that I believe you said. And the first one is you were talking about in a number of instances how judges feel pressure. You're part of the community, you feel pressure. What do you mean by that judges feel pressure? Maybe that's a silly question, but I want to know. I, I, you mean pressure to be fired from their jobs? Do you mean pressure to be ridiculed in the press? What were you talking about when you said judges feel pressure, sir? Well, judges are are sort of um, uh, under the public eye uh, every minute of the day. It's it's actually a it, it actually is a very high pressure job because the judge uh, is is absolutely aware that everything he uh, does and uh, and says is being very carefully uh, scrutinized. So. Uh, um, uh, I, I think that uh, I, if, I think it's fair to say that a judge might feel even more pressure than somebody in uh, in a, a less high-profile type of uh, type of job. So that's what I meant by judges well, feeling, I, I, I'm, feeling pressure. I'm asking. I'm actually asking more specifically, and I'll and I'll let you know why I'm asking. We had testimony earlier today by a gentleman by the name of Rick Wall. He and his wife own a trucking firm that employs 40 people in Winkler, I believe he said. 
Now, he, in, at least in his opinion, recognized that there was something going wrong in this country, and he and his wife sat down, and they literally discussed losing everything. But on the principle of what they knew was right, they proceeded with the risk of losing everything, not just for themselves, but for their 40 employees and their families. So my question is, I can't imagine a pressure stronger than that, sir. And I'm wondering what, how, a, what, if, if I understand what you were saying, you were talking about political pressure on a judge, and I'm talking about real pressure. I'm talking about losing everything you own and still doing what you think is right. Can you comment on it from that perspective, sir? Well, I take your point, and, and, and uh, I'm certainly not suggesting that the uh, uh, pressure any, any individual judge uh, would feel to, uh, um, when, when hearing a, a case involving uh, pandemic restrictions, it would be anything like that or anything as serious as the knowledge that you're going to lose your life. Livelihood and uh, uh, etc. So no, I wasn't meaning to compare it to any particular person. I was simply uh, trying to explain why um, it, it may be that uh, that judges generally uh, were um, uh, didn't play. Say why Canadian judges did not play nearly as active a part as uh, their American counterparts did. Uh, there was no vigorous testing of the. Uh, of the uh, of the restrictions, etc. So I'm not meaning to suggest that the person you're describing was not under much more pressure than any particular judge finding uh, deciding a case. Would Would you agree with me that certain vocations within our society are granted certain privileges, and along with those privileges, privileges become come res special responsibility, and I point out a police officer. Police officer carries a gun, has the, has the ability to take away your freedoms, at least temporarily. So in my mind, there's a significant additional responsibility that we have on those people. Are, do judges fall in that, in that category of special privileges, special responsibilities, more than the average person like myself, for instance? Um. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would, I would agree generally that the, the, the more power one has, the more, uh, the greater one, one, uh, one's responsibility is. If that's what you mean, yes, I do accept that. The one last uh, thing I wanted to ask you about is, you also, I believe you also said in your testimony that people thought there was no point to go to court, and. I bring that up because, and I, and I don't, honestly don't recall who told me this, it may have been a judge, that apart from the obvious functions of a court, the court also acts as a pressure relief valve to society. In other words, things are going wrong in society and people feel that they can go to the courts and get uh, relief. And if the population of Canada, or sorry, the, the country of Canada and the society that we live in was being affected to its very fiber, and that's what has been testified here today by other witnesses. If our very, very fabric of our society was under pressure, and they could not go to the courts to relieve that pressure or get some kind of remedy, would you say that was dangerous for the safety of our society? When they have no, no 
way to get justice, no way to get protection from the administration? Uh, yes, I would agree with uh, I would would agree with that. I'd also add that the uh, 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 the other function of the court there is to act as a uh, um, a break on some of the excesses of the the legislature. And and if the uh, lawmakers were uh, had the knowledge that a judge would uh, would uh, would would strike down uh, uh, an unnecessary restriction, they probably, the legislature, legislators probably wouldn't have put in nearly as many restrictions as they did. If I can just give a personal example, I think I mentioned that going for a hike in a public park and finding that all of the trails have been closed, which makes no sense uh, to anyone. Well, if I was in a, a again, I don't want to be touting the American system, but I think the American, uh, uh, legislators were uh, more uh, aware of the fact that if they, if they made uh, ridiculous uh, restrictions, they would not be allowed by a court. And unfortunately, in Canada, I don't think that they, they felt any pressure from the courts at all. And consequently, some of their, um, and I would say that the vaccine uh, mandate for uh, transport for flying and, and taking a train in Canada was an example of a ridiculous requirement that certain purpose and, and hurt many people. But I think if the uh, uh, legislators uh, knew that such uh, unreasonable uh, restrictions would be struck down, uh, they would not have put them in place. Thank in you, the first sir. Place. So Thank you. Thank you, service for your country. Thank you. And there are no further questions. So, um, Justice Giesbrick, we thank you so much on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry for giving your important testimony today. Okay, well, uh, you're doing a very uh, useful job, and I wish you the best.